I always gravitated towards the uh, ethics and political philosophy right from when I was an undergraduate because I didn't want to spend my life doing something that was intellectually interesting but had no impact on the world. Um, you know, then maybe I would have become a chess player and uh, solved chess puzzles. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Peter Singer is one of the world's most influential philosophers. Born in Melbourne, educated at the University of Melbourne and Oxford, He's taught at Oxford, La Trobe, Monash, and for the past two decades or so at Princeton University. Peter has written or edited more than 40 books, including Animal Liberation, The Life You Can Save, and most recently, Ethics in the Real World, 82 brief essays on things that matter. He has three daughters, and when he's not writing philosophy or reading it, he hikes and surfs. Peter Singer, welcome to the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Uh, you've written on a daunting range of topics, and there's uh, no hope that we'll cover any more than a small fraction of them. But I wanted to start with the uh, issue for which you're probably best known, your work on vegetarianism and, and the notion of speciesism. Uh, what role do you think uh, properly treating animals plays in living a good and ethical life? I think it plays an important role in, in living an ethical life because most people, after all, are eating animals every day and I think you have to take responsibility for your actions. Um, most, of the, most people don't even know how those animals were treated. Uh, increasingly, more of them do because of the work of the animal movement. Uh, but I think if you, if you don't know, you have a responsibility to find out if you do know, then certainly if you're just going down to the supermarket and buying factory farm products, you are participating in one of the largest scale cruelties that's ever existed on this planet. And I don't think you ought to be doing that. So uh, I think to live an ethical life, you have to think about what you're eating, make choices. And at the very minimum, I think uh, any ethically decent person would be led to avoid buying factory farm products. There's, there's more of a debate that you could have about um, free-range animal products as to whether that is or is not defensible, um, but the vast majority of the products sold in supermarkets do come out of factory farms. Have you always been a vegetarian? No, I became a vegetarian uh, only when I myself became aware of where my food came from, um, which was quite late by today's standard. I was actually a graduate student at the University of Oxford when I first heard about factory farming uh, as a result of a, a chance meeting with a fellow student over lunch. And uh, it was much less well known then. Uh, and that led me not only to think about factory farming, but to think about what is the moral status of animals, um, what justifies us 
in treating them as we do. That, that was the first question since I was eating meat. Um, uh, I thought, well, yes, you know, it's an interesting philosophical puzzle. Why is it that we think that all humans are equal in some sense? Um, all humans have a certain moral status that would make it wrong to do things to them, like uh, killing them for our interests, where, especially where they're relatively minor interests, not sort of survival interests of ours. And yet we do this to animals, so what justifies the difference? And I looked into what other people had said about this, what philosophers of the past had said about this, and uh, there was, I really found there was no persuasive justification for the way we treat animals. So I decided that, uh, firstly, I should stop participating in that practice, and uh, eventually, it took a little time, I started thinking maybe I should write something about this myself since there was a bit of a vacuum in that area. And that... Thing, of course, being animal liberation, which became the, the founding text for the for the movement. Uh, some people argue that uh, because farmers have uh, have bred animals, they wouldn't have existed but for us, and therefore it's ethical that we choose how to end their lives. So what's wrong with that argument? Well, uh, that argument is, I think, clearly wrong where you're referring to animals who don't have lives that on the whole are good. Um, it's not just a question of how we end their lives, it's a question of what lives we bestow on them. And uh, just as you would think that it would be wrong to bring into existence a child if you knew that child would have some horrible genetic condition so that they could only suffer and then die without relief from that. So if you're putting an animal into a factory farm where I think that the quality of life is negative on balance, uh, then you can't justify that by saying the animal wouldn't ex have existed if we hadn't done that. Now, if you do think about animals in better conditions, animals who are kept in a way that uh, gives them what on balance is a positive life, uh, the argument starts to carry a little more plausibility. Uh, I still think that there are questions about uh, the way in which we do treat them, which still in any commercial system is, is far from ideal, even if you think on balance it's positive. Um, there are also, of course, increasingly now being raised questions about the greenhouse gas footprint of meat production, and that uh, particularly applies to ruminant animals, uh, cattle and sheep. And, uh, and as it happens in, in terms of the animals who are ranging fairly freely, they are mostly ca cattle and sheep. I mean, you can perhaps get free-range chicken or free-range pig, but it's... Um, it's a tiny percentage of the total market. Uh, so, you know, you could say that the, the argument from uh, the idea that we give them good lives might justify some rather selective, uh, small-scale animal raising, uh, but I don't think it justifies the vast majority of what we're seeing. Mm. So it sounds from what you just said as though either uh, I'm hurting the animal or I'm hurting the planet, uh, those animals that range freely and perhaps have a better quality of life uh, are those which tend to have the higher carbon emissions. That's, that's uh, mostly true. Um, I mean, the exception would perhaps be chicken, where chicken doesn't have a high carbon emission, and uh, uh, free-range eggs, for example, you might think that the hens have a good life, although, of course, they are killed prematurely, but still maybe a, a shorter life is better than, um, than no life. Uh, and and free-range meat chicken, is, which is also obtainable, though on a small scale, 
uh, is a shorter life still. But yeah, you know, you I think you could defend that if you really pushed. Mm. We had uh, backyard chickens growing up, and I always felt as though their quality of life was probably as good as that of our uh, our pet dog, uh, so long as the pet dog was kept separate from the chickens. Uh, right. Uh, but uh, do you think in decades to come, humans will eat a lot less meat, that our notion of a, a good and ethical life will involve uh, lower levels of meat consumption than it does today? I believe that we will develop that uh, ethical standard that uh, makes us future generations look back in horror on the way we treat, we're treating animals today. Uh, yes, and you know, something like the way we look back in horror and people who own slaves and we think how could they possibly have done that and yet of course they accepted it as normal and right in, mm. in their culture. Um, the other thing that's making a difference here uh, is uh, technological change in, in terms of, f of food production and we are already producing uh, foods that uh, resemble meat in terms of their taste and their math feel as they call it in the industry and their nutritional content. Um, they don't they're plant-based or else they're in vitro lab-grown and they don't therefore involve suffering. Um, and uh, the greenhouse gas emissions are less than a tenth of, of what the animal products are. So, yeah, I think we will move as, as these products will increasingly replace animal products. So towards eating artificial meat rather than, uh, ra rather than what we'd call as real meat? Yes, I mean, I guess the real artificial meat would be the uh, in vitro cell grown, uh, you know, which you grow from an animal cell, which is really meat, and, and you could say is artificial, although the industry is preferring the term clean meat for obvious reasons to artificial meat. <laughs> um, but uh, I think we're also getting, you know, plant-based products that are not exactly artificial meat, although, as mm. I say, they have the texture of, of meat um, yes. and the taste of meat. Uh, my brief period of vegetarianism as a, ch as a child, I remember eating a lot of nut meat, which was uh, the, the best substitute available at the time and, and not a very good one. That's right, yes. yes uh, that. So uh, one of the other major contributions that, uh, that you're well known for in the, the field of philosophy is, is the notion of our obligation to, uh, to give. Uh, I think I've used your drowning child analogy in, uh, in half a dozen speeches at least on foreign aid. And recently, in a in a TED talk, you used the metaphor of uh, Wang Yue, the two-year-old child who was run over by a van in China, uh, and then uh, run over by another vehicle and left by three passers-by for uh, for a period of twenty minutes. Uh, you show this, and then you say, "Ah, now I bet you'd you'd think you would step in to help in that situation, but yet you don't give enough to uh, to foreign aid charities." Uh, have you found that metaphor is, uh, is, is effective in, in encouraging people to give a, a larger share of their income? It's hard to say exactly what's effective because I, I use that metaphor, um, uh, both the drowning child and uh, the Wang Wei uh, situation, uh, as part of a larger talk in which I talk about other arguments and so on. So it's hard to say specifically what's effective and I haven't compared the, the drowning child idea with the with the, the child being left on the street in China. The, the reason I use that in the TED talk is, of course, that there's video of it, um, mm. and it's pretty harrowing video. I don't show all of the video, but, um, but you just see these people walking past the small child, clearly lying in the street, and, and they're sort of studiously looking in the other direction. Uh, you, know, you can see that they, they kind of not noticed it, but they're saying, it's none of my business, I don't want to help. And I think that is the attitude that uh, many people have 
to people in great need uh, in extreme poverty in developing countries. Um, they don't really want to know about it. They know that we are very fortunate here in Australia to have the security, economic security that we do. Um, they probably know that they could do something to help some of these children through effective uh, organisations, um, but uh, they'd rather not know about it. How has that affected your own giving? You you give quite a quite a significant share of your income to charity, I understand. Yes, that's right. I'm giving something like thirty five to forty percent at the moment. I'm sort of hoping to get to half. Um, wow. But uh, uh, so yes, it has affected my own giving. Um, over over uh, more than forty years now, I first started thinking about this issue. Uh, I wrote an article. The article where the drowning child story first appeared was published in nineteen seventy two. And we decided, I suppose the year before that, my wife and I decided that we would give 10% of our income to Oxfam. We were living in Oxford and we went to talk to the people at Oxfam, which was headquartered there. Um, so we've been giving a, a minimum of 10% for more than 40 years, but gradually as we've become more comfortable and as our children have become independent and so on, um, we've increased that amount. Do you find yourself consciously aware of the issue of altruism when you're contemplating a purchase you'd like to make, when you're considering whether to update your car or to uh, uh, go to a, a slightly nicer restaurant? Does the, is, is altruism quite salient for you when you're making those choices? Uh, it's certainly salient on the big choices. Um, uh, so, yes, if there were a purchase, I think the car I'm driving is 12 years old or something, but if there were a purchase like that, I would certainly not consider buying a Mercedes or something of that sort. Mm. Um, I would consider buying something that is serviceable, that will reliably get me, I'm driving a Toyota actually, that will get me from A to B. Um, and uh, I've got a Prius, so it's you know minimising the greenhouse gas emissions as well. Um, but uh, uh, not with smaller purchases, right? I'm not, I'm not going to think, um, oh, I'm not going to buy an ice cream now because the money could go to some you know help some some poor mm. person I think I think you know you go crazy if you do that um, <laughs> so so you don't think about the small purchases but some of the some of the larger ones you might and one of the other aspects of your work in altruism has been this notion of effective altruism of being much more rigorous in the way in which we rank charities it's it's something that's dear to my heart as an economist I think uh, Australia it would be wonderful if Australia had a site like givewell.org that you've been actively involved with and uh, your own site, the uh, lifeyoucansave.org, is, uh, is uh, doing similar work focusing on impact evaluation. Uh, talk to us about the, the movement to assess the impact of charities and, and what impact that's having on charities themselves. Right. Uh, effective altruism is a, is a quite recent movement. It's really within 10 years. Uh, the organisations you mentioned, Give Well and The Life You Can Save, are about eight years old now. Um, and uh, I think they're really important because when I used to talk about this, I would go on talkback radio and people would call up and say, ah, how do you know that any of the money you're giving to these organisations gets to the people who need it? You know, I've heard that they, you know, 90 cents in every dollar gets swallowed up in their administration and so on. Well, you know, there may be a couple of organisations like that, the quite fraudulent ones, the, the well-known ones, the Oxfams and Save the Children and UNICEF are, uh, you know, nowhere near like that. But... Um, I think we didn't really have good evidence about the effectiveness of the particular interventions. It's, it's not just the amount of money that goes to administration, but 
what about the rest of it? Is it really doing good? Um, an organisation could cut back on its administrative costs, but at the, uh, the you know get rid of the staff who are monitoring the the programs that they're running, and mm. uh, it might not be doing any good. But uh, GiveWell was the one that set the standard uh, because it was started by a couple of young guys who were working at a hedge fund in the boom times before the global financial crisis, and they decided that they wanted to give some of their earnings to charity, um, but they didn't know which charity to give them to. And um, when they looked around and even wrote to some of the candidate charities that they thought might be good, they just couldn't get any hard data. They just mm. could not get evidence about what the interventions that the charities were involved in were actually achieving. And they were amazed because these were data nerds who worked for a hedge fund and were used to analysing reams of data about companies for the hedge fund to invest in. They were amazed that this huge area in the United States is now $350 billion a year given to charities um, seemed to be just working on, on hunches without, um, without real data. So they left the hedge fund, took a huge pay cut and uh, set up GiveWell and uh, decided to start providing some of that information. Uh, and the Life You Can Save then does it as well. So I think it is really important and it um, means that people can give with confidence that they know that what they're doing is, is doing what it's supposed to do. Do you find it more satisfying as a donor to uh, know that the charities to which you're now giving, uh, uh, you have greater confidence in their effectiveness than you might have done a generation ago? Yes, I think that's true. Um, and it has affected my giving. Um, I, mean, I still think Oxfam is a good organisation. I'm not saying that uh, one shouldn't give to Oxfam, but um, I now also give to um, some of the other top-ranked charities from with uh, The Life You Can Save or with GiveWell. Um, and, and I do feel a lot more confident that I'm giving in the right place. Mm. I, uh, my uh, son and I did an exercise where we sat down for him to give a small amount of money to a charity, and uh, which I would match. So we went to give well. He chose the Against Malaria Foundation, not surprisingly, because it comes at the top of their lists. Yeah. But then it was that lovely experience too of them tracking the donation through and showing that he was purchasing uh, a bed net, and here is where the bed net would go, and this is this is the community it was going into. So it had that direct connection that. Uh, has always been a, an appealing feature of child sponsorship, but then for the economist side of me, it had that that notion that this is additionality, that this is providing a bed net that would not have otherwise be provided at a at a very low price. Yeah, that's right. I think it's good when there can be that uh, trackability. Of course, it doesn't work with everything that you do, but mm, um, mm. An, another organisation that does that is Give Directly, which ought to appeal to you as an economist yes. because they're actually transferring money. Um, so for every dollar you give, 90 cents goes to one of the poorest families in East Africa, and you can track that as well. And uh, obviously, you know, with the uh, law of diminishing marginal utility, you'll know that a, uh, that a family that's, you know, perhaps earning uh, $500 a year total um, is going to make a lot better use of 90 cents of your dollar than you could make of the whole dollar if you're on 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever Australians are typically on. One of the other aspects of effective altruism that fascinates me is this 80,000 hours movement, uh, the notion that one should think carefully about the 80,000 hours that you'll be working in your life and uh, uh, use that in a way that great, most greatly benefits the world. Um, thinking about who would do the job if you didn't do it and, and perhaps also thinking about uh, your charitable donations as part of your job choice. I find it intriguing, the suggestion that perhaps one of the best things you could do for the world is to become a merchant banker rather than aid worker because the merchant banker's giving could fund five more aid, aid, aid workers. 
do you do you find that idea catching on? Has it affected the way in which you live your life? Uh, it hasn't affected my choice of career. I guess it came to me a little bit late. And anyway, I feel I've been very lucky in the way things have worked out that I have been able to have a positive influence. And of course, if I can influence other people to have good careers, then that's probably better than me just going into merchant banking myself, even if I could get a job there. But um, I certainly know, you know, a, a number of people who are doing this, including um, at least one of my ex-Princeton students, um, and who are doing it, I think, very successfully. Um, I you know, know a student who's given half of his income for the last five or six years since he graduated, and uh, that's been a six-figure sum each year. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's significant, and, and he's, he's enjoying his life, right? He's not someone who hates what he's doing and is doing it only to be able to give. He actually finds it, the work quite challenging. He's mathematically mm. inclined, and he's writing algorithms to try to predict whether commodities will go up and down. So uh, he finds it intellectually challenging as well. But it's certainly not for everyone. Um, you know, some people would not succeed in that world. Some people would hate what they're doing. Um, a lot of people, uh, when I speak about it, uh, ask the question, um, you know, but isn't he also doing harm? Isn't by working in merchant banking or in commodity trading as he is, isn't he somehow having a, a, a bad impact on poor people? And that will depend, of course. I've talked to him and I don't think that what he's doing really has any impact apart from the profits for the company that he's working on. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose if you worked on merchant banking and they said, look, we need to put together this finance package to fund a big coal mine, um, take an issue we've got here in Australia, I think um, there might be a point at which you would say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That would be really harming the planet to make it possible for another big coal mine to start operating. Um, but uh, but a, a lot of what people do, I think, is either neutral or positively beneficial. So I, I don't think I don't think we ought to have this uniformly negative view of, of going into finance. Mm. Uh, you you've written a lot of uh, pub, uh, philosophy for public consumption. You are somebody who uh, writes crisply and clearly, and uh, clearly uh, takes that that question of engagement with the public very very seriously. Uh, from the standpoint of uh, a non-philosopher uh, like like myself, like our listener, uh, how should where should they go for their philosophical sustenance? Uh, you know, I suppose if we we're looking fifty years back, many people would have gotten their ethical and moral uh, moral teachings each Sunday from a from a church service. Uh, these days, our consumption of, of philosophy is much more ad hoc. Uh, how can we make it more systematic? How can we build that into, uh, into a good life? Yes. Um, I wish more of my colleagues did write for a, a broad audience. I think, uh, I mean, certainly some of them, some of them do. Um, but uh, I think it's partly a, a matter of exploring for yourself what, uh, what you want to read. Uh, but there's quite a lot written now on ethics, which is readable for the general public. Um, I suppose the, the philosopher that I read as a teenager was Bertrand Russell. Um, and I, you know, I try to write as clearly and lucidly as he does. He was a, a beautiful writer. Um, but on, on ethics, I think he was not very clear. That was not his strongest field. Uh, but but there's, there's good work being done now, and there's uh, also a number of more popular books being written about ethics. Um, 
about, for example, the, f the famous trolley problem about uh, mm. whether you should switch a runaway train to a track where there's only one person who will be hit rather than five. And if you think, yes, it's okay to throw the switch to kill the one rather than five, what if you're on a footbridge and your only way to stop the runaway train is to push a very heavy person off the bridge in front of it um, where that person will be killed? Um, Since I've got you here, what is the answer to that? So my answer, because I'm a consequentialist, that is I judge things by the right action and by its consequences, I think you ought to both throw the switch and push the, the heavy person, right? Um, the assumption is that you yourself are not heavy enough to stop the train, otherwise you ought to jump off and sacrifice your, yourself. But, um, but on the assumption that only pushing this other very heavy person will stop it, then uh, I think, yes, if it's, if it's just a case of one innocent person being killed or five innocent, person being, innocent people being killed, it's always better that only one innocent person be killed. Pure utilitarianism. Yes, that's right. Sorry, I stopped yeah. you. No, I was just saying, so there's a book on that uh, which is actually called Would You Push the Fat Man uh, by Dave Edmonds. And, and uh, he's one writer who writes for a larger audience. Uh, Nigel Warburton's another. There's, sort of, there's been a bit of a move of philosophy into a broader audience. There are magazines like Philosophy Now written for uh, a broader public. And so I think there is... Uh, a body of literature that's starting to exist which is uh, readable, enjoyable and uh, treats ethical issues in a reasonably serious fashion. What do you think about this view, I think I read it in an Alain de Botton book at, uh, a couple of years back, that uh, uh, really what matters to in living an ethical life is not pushing the boundaries of philosophical understanding but honing to well-understood truths. Um, be nicer to your spouse. Spend, take your children to the park rather than plonking them in front of, in front of the TV. Uh, spend time with your elderly relative who might repeat a story that you've heard, heard before. Um, and I think the Elaine de Baton notion is that what churches did wasn't to stretch the boundaries of your ethical understanding. It was just to keep on reminding you of these things which are familiar but very hard to implement in practice. I think the problem with taking that um, more conventional view of how we ought to live is that it doesn't recognise the way in which the world has changed in the present century. So um, there was a time when uh, it was very difficult to aid people on the other side of the world. Uh, we didn't really know what they needed, um, or if we did, it was going to take, you know, if there was a famine, it was going to take too long to send uh, help to them. Uh, so at that time, then the idea of um, be nice to your friends and family and your elderly relatives and so on uh, could be seen as being you know, the sum total of what most people ought to do to live an ethical life. Um, but I don't think it's the total anymore. I'm not mm. saying it's not the right thing to do. Of course it is. Um, you should live like that. But um, you should also be aware of your responsibilities to people on the other side of the world who just through accident of where they're born and where you're born are so much worse off than you are and where you can make such a difference to their life. Um, and of course the whole question we were talking about before about our involvement in complicity in, in factory farming, um, basically a brutal system of turning animals into products, um, is also something that, that conventional morality it does not cover because it just accepts that without really much question. So, so I do think we, mm. we do need to rethink the boundaries of uh, what we ought to do to live an ethical life. Are there areas where you find it hard to practice what you preach? 
Oh, yes, certainly. And I mean, you know, we had the conversation before. I, I don't find it hard to buy a, a, a Prius rather than a Mercedes. But, um, but there, are, there are some things that, you know, say holidays with families that uh, cost significant amounts um, are something that is, that's important to me. Um, and yet, if I really stop and think about it and ask myself, so, yeah, should we really be doing this given the difference that the money could make to others? Um, that's that, that that there are those issues that come up definitely yeah. how do you in in so much of what you do you're pushing the boundaries of in two directions uh, one is that you're often the first one publicly making a very controversial argument i'm thinking about your sort of work around euthanasia for severely disabled infants or consensual sexual relations between adult siblings um, the other is that you're inviting pretty ferocious pub personal attacks. Uh, how do you deal with the twin challenges there of, of the possibility, maintaining an open mind to the possibility that you're wrong uh, and uh, uh, maintaining a sufficiently thick skin uh, against uh, the, the public critiques that, uh, that come at you? I think it's part of the role of philosophers to put arguments out there for consideration. And of course we recognise that we might be wrong. But we'll only accept that we're wrong if somebody puts up a good counter-argument. We're not going to accept that we're wrong because somebody you know, sends you a death threat. That's, that's not a counter-argument. Mm, mm. um, um, and uh, so there are some cases where people do put up some good arguments and you might change your mind. Um, and and fine, you know, then I think, I think you've still played a role in eliciting that argument and getting people to understand why some position is right or some position is wrong. Um, but in terms of the, the threats and abuse, uh, I do think you just have to develop a thick skin. Um, you know, if you're going to be in that field, then you have to be prepared to, to wear that. Of course, you could, you, know, you could always say, well, I'll go and do logic or metaphysics and I probably won't get any of that abuse. But... Uh, I always gravitated towards the uh, ethics and political philosophy right from when I was an undergraduate because I didn't want to spend my life doing something that was intellectually interesting but had no impact on the world. Mm. Um, you know, then maybe I would have become a chess player and uh, solved chess puzzles. Um, but uh, I think I, th I always felt I wanted to have that connection and, and wanted to make a difference in some way. And um, as, as you know, it, um, I flirted with politics a little bit. I didn't uh, have uh, your success in getting elected, but I stood for the Greens uh, for uh, federal parliament twice. Mm. Um, and, and that, I guess, is a reflection of the fact that um, I, I wanted to have impacts in various ways and uh, uh, writing for a broader public and trying to influence debates in different direction and change people's lives is one way of doing that. On a personal level, what's the most important thing you do to stay emotionally and physically healthy? <laughs> um, I think probably having um, a sense of purpose is, is, is really important to me, feeling that I'm doing some, some useful work. Uh, I think that, that encourages me to go on with what I'm doing. Uh, and there is now um, significant medical evidence that people who have a purpose are more likely to be thriving physically as well. Um, you know, we know that when people who've worked for a corporation all their lives, um, very busy, then suddenly retire, they're in more danger of suffering a heart attack or other um, health problem in the years once they retire and essentially mm. lose that purpose. Uh, so that's important to me. Um, I do think I eat a healthy diet, although I became a vegetarian for 
purely for uh, animal regarding reasons. Um, uh, now, having looked at the, the research on that, um, I certainly think that most uh, Westerners eat far too much meat. I'm not saying that it would damage my health if I ate a small amount of meat twice a week, but, um, but I think eating a, a vegetarian or even vegan, largely vegan diet is uh, a healthy thing to do. And finally, I, I keep physically active. Um, my wife and I are both keen on, on hiking. Um, I guess we're slowing down a bit now as we get older, but we still, we're still doing it. Um, and I, over the summer when I'm in Australia, I'm uh, in the water a lot. I, I swim and I surf, so um, I think that all helps as well. Thinking back to, to your teenage self, is there a piece of advice that you, you would give now to uh, teenage Peter Singer? Um, I think live by your values um, is, is a good bit of advice. You know, think about your values and, and try to live in accordance with them. And I think... I, I did end up doing that, but I can see at some periods that was perhaps in doubt. Um, I actually went up to university, uh, went to the University of Melbourne, and uh, when I in, in went to enrol, I was going to enrol for law. Um, and I had an, uh, an advisor who saw me who looked at my results for history and literature and so on in uh, my final year of high school and said, oh, you'd probably get find law a bit dull. Maybe you should try doing a combined arts law course. Um, and I think that was outstanding advice because otherwise I might have ended up a lawyer and um, who knows what values I would have had uh, rubbing shoulders with lawyers all the time. It's <laughs> hard to say. So, You're speaking um, about the course that I did, of course. That's <laughs> right, right. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, keep yourself open to a wide range of ideas. I, mm. And having taught at, uh, at Princeton University in the United States now for 18 years, I really like the idea that things like law and medicine should be uh, postgraduate courses that that everybody should do a broad uh, bachelor of arts or bachelor of arts or bachelor of science or something um, as an undergraduate degree to uh, to get a wider range of, of ideas into them. What person or, or what experience has most uh, influenced your view of living an ethical life? I think probably the experience of of becoming a vegetarian at a time when there were very few vegetarians, uh, and therefore uh, and also. You know, not much of an animal movement either, just a very conservative sort of Royal Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals movement, um, and, and therefore becoming part of this group of people, um, small group of people who were really committed to trying to change the world and change the treatment of animals. Uh, and I, I greatly admire a lot of the people that I was working with, um, their commitment, and I think that was an important experience to feel that there are other people that you could work with who are part of this movement that was really trying to, to reduce unnecessary suffering in the world. And finally, when you're in an ethical crisis, is there a thing that you think to yourself, a sentence that you say to yourself as a way of managing an ethical dilemma? No, there's no single, there's no single sentence or anything that I, that I say to myself. Um, talking to my wife about it is probably one of the good things to do. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and again, as I say, you know, trying to think what your values are and trying to think what's what's important in your life. You can so easily get carried away into obsessing about something that really, when you stop and reflect on it, is just not that important. And that helps to overcome what appear to be ethical crises, but when you think more about them, aren't really. Peter Singer, thank you very much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast this week. 
If you enjoyed this episode, would you mind taking a moment just to let your friends know? Maybe through Facebook, Twitter, or some other, some other way of spreading the word of the good life. Next week, I'll be back with another guest to discuss living a healthier, happier, and more ethical life.